0: Okay, let's get into our word because uh, I'm already hungry. It is uh, November second, two thousand and eight. Uh, our message this morning is called "Near and Far Sighted." Uh, if you'll turn with me to Psalm one nineteen, Psalm one nineteen in the Hebrew Bible is an acrostic, and uh, an example of an acrostic in English would be like that thing in Clear Lake, NASA, right? Doesn't stand for need another seven astronauts. That's what I was taught when I was little, but it uh, it's the National. Uh, what is it? National Aeronautic and Space Association. So you're supposed to know when you see those letters that each letter stands for something. That's an acrostic. In Hebrew, Psalm 119 starts. The first word of Psalm 119 starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The next stanza starts with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so on and so forth. So this was an easy thing for Hebrews to memorize, and it became, it's the longest psalm in the Bible, but it became something that was kind of like our ABCs. You know, after a certain age, for me it was, I don't know, 31 or so, uh, I didn't have to think very hard about uh, saying my ABCs, right? You learn them in a song or something, and they're just there. Well, this became that way. And uh, having said that, I wanted to read you some things out of it. In Psalm 119, starting in verse 73. Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. Uh, One of the things that the writer of this psalm got that is just excellent, is he understood that God made him. Uh, if you've ever looked in the mirror and saw, thought something was fundamentally wrong with the way that you are, you need to take that up with your creator. Uh, I've had several cars that I thought were designed poorly, so I just started buying from another manufacturer. I may have chosen wrongly, huh, Adam? Uh, my Ford still breaks. What I'm getting at is many times we're standing thinking, I'm too short, I'm too tall, I'm too bold, I'm too fat, I'm too whatever. And we need to realize that there is a God in heaven who delighted in knitting us together in our parents' womb. We we need to understand that the king of kings cares how we're made. And more than that, this writer says, Give me understanding to learn your commands. In other words, kind of like James one five that says that if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you. This writer is crying out saying, Lord, you're the one that made me. You can see where I'm deficient and where I'm not. Would you help me? Help me to understand. Help me to walk rightly is what his cry is. And he says, I'm going to put my hope in your word. I want you to understand that God's Word was never meant to be a sword to stick you with. Now, I'm a preacher who has stuck lots of people with the Word. Uh, (laughs) I am a preacher who will put you in the valley of decision because that is how I got saved. When the Lord speaks to you and says... Something along the lines of, if Baal is God, serve him. If God is God, serve him. Now quit wavering between two opinions and choose this day who you'll serve. For some people, that's an important place to come to. There's another side, though. There are those who feel like their best just will never be good enough. There are those who feel like no matter what they do, they could never be close to the Lord. I don't know which category you fall into today, but what I want you to understand is that God made you. So when he made you, it's it's trite, like a, like you're speaking to a child to say he didn't make junk, and yet it's true. The basic person that is who you are doesn't need to change. What What needs to happen is that you admit that maybe you're not using your design and function in the way that God wanted you to. And you start with Him as a foundation and you move forward. A foundation that is based on the hope that your life can be conformed to His Word. Uh, While still in Psalm 119, turn to the 103rd verse. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. It's interesting that in Israel, if you had been raised there during the days Jesus was raised there, you would have taken your children and rubbed honey on their gums, when you read them the Word in the equivalent of kindergarten. And you did that because you wanted them to understand through all of their senses, you wanted to get their attention, that the sweetest thing in life is God's direction, His Word, His Word to you. Think about for just a moment how different that is than the way that our kids grow up hearing about the Word. If you go take 100 kids who are 10 years old off the street and you ask them what the first word that comes into their mind, play the name association game, say Bible, I guarantee you for some large percentage it's boring. Really? If you talk to them about snake bites, shipwrecks, raising the dead, people falling from second story windows, left-handed assassins sticking a sword all the way through someone, a guy being so fat that the heel of the sword is hidden in him, those kinds, that's not boring. It's all in the Bible. So where did they get the idea that the Bible was boring? Well, maybe people got a wrong idea about themselves and God and God's Word, and they think that no matter what they do, they'll be condemned. No matter what they do, it'll never be good enough. No matter what they do, church people wouldn't accept them anyway. I want to be honest. When I got born again, I didn't like church people very much. uh. It helps when you start your own church than the people that are in it you like. (laughs) Now, all kidding aside, I found out that there were more lost people inside the church than out of it. And what was worse is it was harder to reach them because they had cloaked their lives in something that looked like Christianity, but it didn't feel much like Christianity. When a woman throws her mink shawl off, whatever those things are that go just around your neck, when she throws that off and turns and sneers at me because in all of my heart, I'm just trying to praise God and I didn't know it was against the rules to raise your hands. Uh, That's not Jesus. Uh, Maybe I didn't smell good. I don't know. Maybe I didn't have the right haircut. I'm really not sure. I've never been much into dress code. I don't know what it was that so offended her about me. But you know who was not offended with me that day? The king of kings. And I have learned that the favor of the father is more important than the favor of the children. So I'm going to crave it. And I'm going to encourage you to do the same thing. And to be bold enough to push back misconceptions and false perceptions. Have you ever heard that somebody was a... Well, let's just pick somebody from my side of the fence. Somebody's a charismatic. And what comes into your mind is not a favorable impression. ...or somebody is a Pentecostal... ...or somebody is Baptist... ...or somebody is Methodist... ...we all have kind of a stereotype... ...that goes with those words... ...that may not be reflective of those people... ...I had to learn... ...especially for instance... ...when speaking of the Methodist... ...Methodist has been different... ...about every 40-50 years... ...and the Methodist of the 17th century... ...were the most fiery people on the planet... ...that had not necessarily been my experience... ...in the Methodist church today... So it depends many times on the time period you're talking about. Not only that, have you ever, let's just say you're a Red Sox fan, right? So all Red Sox fans are great. Have you ever met one you didn't like? Did that make all the Red Sox fans bad? Of course it did, because we're not Red Sox fans. But you understand what I'm saying? Not only is it dependent upon the time, it's dependent on the people that you run into, Uh, The number of times I've heard this statement in my life is amazing. Well, I met somebody from that church, (laughs) and they... Really? There's 40,000 people that go to that church. What made you think that one person was representative of it? And by the way, are you representing my church to the world? Because that scares me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, with that in mind, we are supposed to be presenting the idea that the word is sweet. Sweet like honey. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Now, let's be honest. is there never been a wrong path in your life that you didn't really hate? <laughs> Somebody slaps you in the face. What is the right path? Let's say it's turn the other cheek. Let's just stretch out on a biblical limb there, right? How good does it feel to choose that right path? Not very good. Somebody murders your character through slander. You know, well, that Darren is just... (laughs) What does Darren want to do? Well, let's say Darren is eminently godly. That's not a stretch. So it's not hard for Darren. How about Angie when she hears somebody say it about her husband, though? Does that wrong path, uh, is that a little bit alluring to want to go down a wrong path there? Of course. So what is he saying? I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. It means that you dwell in God's Word enough to it retrains you to hate what is wrong. This is why Hebrews says it's through constant training that we learn to distinguish good from evil. Because from the very beginning, that which looks good to us ultimately destroys us. And that which doesn't look so fun, maybe somebody told you it was boring is the thing that leads you to the most abundant life. In fact, what you find out with us is that we tend to be very nearsighted. When we look at something, we see what is right there, the trees rather than the forest. God has a little bit more of an elevated view. Uh, I remembered this week uh, a time period where David taught me to play chess. He's back there with the kids. Good. I can brag on him for a while. Don't get too excited. He didn't teach me very well. He told me about halfway through the game's different rules as they became important. And he won all three matches. He had won the fourth, but Jennifer came in and saved me. Thank God for that. But one of the things that I remember from playing chess with David is that I really had trouble even remembering what all of the pieces did. God is a God who formed you. He designed you. He doesn't have to struggle to remember whether you can move two spaces up and one space over, whether you can move a space in any direction, whether you can only move one direction. He knows how he made you. This is very important because this leads me to another problem that I had in playing chess. Since my eyes were focused on what was before me, I had trouble understanding how each move would affect the rest of the board, and I could not anticipate David's responses. I couldn't therefore plan multiple moves. David apparently had just watched Bobby Fischer or something like that because he told me, he said, you know, good chess players, they can anticipate five moves out. I'm thinking, I can't remember what all the pieces do, David. What are you talking about? And I began to think about that. Five moves out, that means if I did this, then he will either do this or that. How would you know something like that? Well, you know the ability of each piece. And you know the probability that that person will choose a certain direction. When you guys go out here, you don't have to stop at this intersection. None of you have to. You have the free will to just not do it. Probably most of you will stop there, though, because there's a consequence if you don't. Not just a ticket. (laughs) That's right. Not just a ticket. I heard a man on a radio talking with Jimmy Swagger one time. He said, Yeah, Pastor Swagger, that's like that's like when you're coming up to an intersection. He said in the, the light turns green, but there's a semi coming the other direction. He said, And you keep going. You right, But you dead right. <laughs> Jimmy laughed about that for like thirty minutes uninterrupted without breathing on the air. I was worried, you know, he's getting older. I thought he might not might not recover from that. We tend to be nearsighted, and what we need is we need a perspective that comes from above us that says, if you do what seems most immediately expedient, it's going to hurt you in these ways. If you will take the road less traveled by in this scenario, it will bless you in these ways. The word is supposed to be that perspective for us. That's what it's supposed to be. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet. That part I get. In each situation, his word shows me how I should react. The next part's even better, though. And a light for my path. This means that it begins to illuminate your future steps. It's one thing to say, what do I do in this situation? It's quite another to know that the step in this situation is not going to create more problems. Anybody ever have a splinter? There's a surgical solution for that. I could cut off your finger. It might cause more problems than the splinter did, but it is a solution. Not everything that comes to us is the right choice to make. Not even everything that you read in the Word is the right choice to make. You need to consider, is it speaking to me? You ever open the Bible, found a strange verse? Judas went out and hung himself. Huh. You flip a few pages, what you do, do quickly. What are you saying, Lord? It's not the Lord. That scripture roulette. It's just foolishness. You need to know that God is trying to get your attention through that word. Well, how do you know that? You need to stretch out for Him and believe, like some of the words of prophecy said, that He desires contact with you. How many of you are trying to trick your children? How many of you are really invested in your children's destruction? I mean, you're thinking... I just will not have succeeded as a parent if I don't raise a dope dealer or a crack whore. I mean, I'm going to feel bad if I don't do that. Why do we call God Father? We call Him Father because He is like an earthly father but better, one without sin, one without ill motive. If we, who are intimately flawed, evil the Bible says, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Father in Heaven... Know how to give us good things. He will never ask anything of you that is not for your benefit. When Judah was just a little boy, barely able to speak, I gave him an old navy hat. And he was wearing the old navy hat, and uh, I said, Judah, how about that old navy hat? He says, no, it's new. I, I said, baby, it is an old navy hat. He's looking up at it. Well, there's a bill on it. He doesn't see the words Old Navy, and he couldn't read at the time anyway. So we had a full-blown argument on the steps of church about that. I had to take it off, bring it down, turn it around, and show him that the words were on it, Old Navy. How many times is our relationship with God just like that? He is trying to show you something that you just can't see, but you are convinced he just wants to kill your fun. He wants to mess up your life. He wants to torture you for a while. And in all of our infinite wisdom, we put God in a box that is sadistic. God is benevolent beyond belief and patient beyond belief. If the words have ever come out of your mouth, if I were God, you guys would all be in trouble. I expect things to be done however I wanted them done the first time right away. And if I don't explain it to you, read my mind and innately know how to do it. They're not very much patience in Eric Stevens. Poor Adam was working with me yesterday, and he's trying to explain a way to fix a problem. And he thought I didn't understand him because he explained it more than once. I understood him. I just didn't agree with him. And it's hard because he's having to wait for me to catch up to him because he's he's right. And that's a problem. I remember when I was right most of the time, but but he was. He's right. And it is a frustrating thing. To know when something ought to be done a certain way, but it's just not being done that way. Isn't that the position God's in almost all of the time? So what would you do if you were him? Would you get frustrated with your kids and just beat them? Well, I've done that. Not today. All my kids are bruise-free today. He's not like that. That's not what he does. I wanted to show you something. Turn to Proverbs 20. We got kind of a laid back message today. I'm tired. That's why. Yeah, y'all like it. No no shouting, no jumping off the stage. In Proverbs twenty, look at the twenty seventh verse. The lamp of the Lord searches the spirit of a man. It searches out his inmost being. Now the word of the Lord is like a lamp. The word of the Lord is like a lamp, Psalm 119 said. It provides light to your path, a lamp to your feet. And here that same lamp is being turned upon us. And it is searching you. In what way does the word search you? Well, if the word says turn the other cheek, and that's your understanding of the word, and you're in that situation and you refuse to do it, the word has just revealed something about us. Maybe the reason we've said the Bible is boring is because we want an excuse to not have things revealed about us, not to ourselves, not to anyone else. I don't know about your family, but mine's got some unspoken things in it. It horrifies the extended family when I get behind a microphone. We have this idea that if we just don't talk about it, it'll get better, or it'll go away. That's not true. You break a bone. Don't talk about it. Don't treat it. Don't do anything for it. You tell me it'd get better. It's when you see old guys walking around with a you know big knot on their collarbone and say, "Well, what happened? Well, I broke it, but I didn't want to tell mom." And look, it... we're not Christians are not supposed to walk around gnarled spiritually because they didn't deal with things. So the Word of God forces us to deal with things, not so that a majority can look down on a minority and say, "You, you guys have that problem," but so that everybody can be searched by God's Word and develop an appetite for it and become more like Him. That's the goal. He says, the lamp of the Lord searches the spirit of a man. It searches out his inmost being. Inmost. This means that when you're sitting there deliberating something in your thoughts, God is deliberating you. He's searching you. He didn't just make you, friends. He didn't just design you. He's taking a daily look at you. How about this one? Turn to First Chronicles. That'll be to the left in your Bible. It's always lots of turning. That's just because I love the Word. First Chronicles 28. I understand it's become a popular thing in a certain movement in churches to not bring your Bibles so nobody feels bad. It's kind of like going to sea without bringing a boat. Uh, it doesn't make very much sense to me. If we're not going to base our church services on the Word if we're not going to be instructed by it, judged by it, encouraged by it, then what are we doing? Why not go be a Mormon or some other ridiculous thing? That's right, we can say that as a Christian church. All right, and, uh Chronicles 28, look at the ninth verse. This is David speaking to Solomon. It says, And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Now I want you to understand, when he says he will reject you forever, this is a note to a national leader about his position as king. He will reject you as king forever. God would not reject the human being forever, and that's a longer story. But I read this to you so that you would see, he doesn't just know your thoughts. He understands the motive behind why you think what you think. You know what's interesting about that is I don't even know that. I don't know why I think what I do sometimes. You ever have somebody walk in the room and you have a stray thought and you thought, Lord, why am I thinking that? One time I was standing in Starbucks and a guy next to me says, Yes, you know, I think I'll have a latte. Yeah, that's what I'll have. And he turns and looks at me and says, I'll have a latte. Now, I don't have to tell you what went through my mind, because it seems that it may have gone through your mind as well. So as they're handing him his latte, and I've already sized him up and thought all kind of unholy things about him, they're handing me mine. And they set it on the counter, and when I touched it with my hand, it spilled 16 ounces of flaming hot liquid. And I don't know where a counter falls on you, but it falls in a rather sensitive area on me. And I felt the voice of the Spirit say, Who's the idiot? And I realized, God made that man. He made him. Doesn't mean he approves of everything about him. He, he may be as annoyed by his accent as I was. I don't know. But God loves him. He loves him. And the Word will bring the best out of him that that man is capable of producing for God. And who am I to stand and judge him unless God has spoken to me and said, I want you to say this to him. And I learned a lot that day. I haven't always put it into practice, but I learned something. Now, it's one thing to not look at your brothers and sisters and size them up and judge them. But you can't do it to yourself either. This word is supposed to show you that God sees things that you don't and give you the courage to trust him for it. It's not supposed to tell you, what did we say? You're inadequate. What was that trying to say other than pulls a vacuum? Something like that. You're inadequate. It's not supposed to teach you that you can never succeed. You don't find that in the Word. You, go, you find Jesus going to those who everybody else threw away and showing them that they still had value. Even a leper. If you're willing, Lord, you can make me clean. How did he respond? I am willing. So what does that mean about you? He judges the motives behind our thoughts. Uh, Suffice it to say he knows us pretty well. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 30. I want to talk to you about his nation. Well, Mandy's there. Angie's there. Where's the rest of you? In there. God formed a nation, not all that different than He forms a person. He knit this nation together in the furnace of Egypt. Egypt was a place where pressures could form the nation. Egypt was a place where the heart of the nation could be tested. And God came to His nation and said, Today, I'm redeeming you. I'm purchasing you for myself. And He brought them out of Egypt. And on the day that He saved them, He says lots of things about them. Now, here we are, some 40 years into the desert, the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy, and he begins speaking to them about their future, just for round numbers sake. Let's say that we're talking about the year 1500, because it's between fourteen and 1600, and uh, it's just not that important for the message today. Okay? Let's say we're talking about the year 1500. Just form the nation. Hear this. Um uh, I'm sorry, 2864, then we'll go to 30. In 2864, he says, Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations, from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind. Eyes weary with longing and despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both day and night, never sure for your life. Is that exciting? No, not at all. There's nothing anybody would want. The circumstance in which God is speaking here becomes important because now we're talking about somebody farsighted. Let's imagine that uh, whether you suffer from myopia or or, uh, stigmatism, whatever it is, that you don't see well and you're in the ancient world, what would you want to do? You'd want to pair off with somebody who did see well, wouldn't you? Uh, My previous Bible teacher uh, could read things, uh, could not read things up close, but had perfect distance vision. I had very poor distance vision, but could read things up close. We made a great team, because without my contacts and without his reading glasses, we could still function on a normal day. You know, he warned me about what was coming in the distance. I told him what was right in front of his face. you understand how people might pair off that way? Well, what if you serve a God that sees hundreds and thousands of years into the future and warns you about it? See, he's just spoken to his nation from two mountains. He separated his nation... And he put some closest to a mountain called Ebal, others close to a mountain called Gerizim. And he had representatives of each tribe stand on both of those two mountains. And from one side, he began to say, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. Then from the other side, he said, if you do these things or don't do these things, you'll be cursed. They were standing in the middle. They had life on one side, death on the other. They're in the Valley of Decision. And then he says to them, then the Lord will scatter you among the nations, blah, 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 which was one of the curses. So wait a minute, Lord. On the same day you tell me if I do these things, I'll be blessed. And if I do these things, I'll be cursed. You tell me that I will be scattered among the nations. What is he saying? He's saying on the day he founds the nation at the very beginning, he knows that they're going to fail. Does that feel fair to you? Turn with me to the 30th chapter. First verse. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you. (laughs) When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you. Did he know that they were only going to fail? How do you get a blessing? By doing what he said. How do you get a curse? By not doing what he said. When all these blessings and curses have come upon you. It sounds a little bit to me like God knew ahead of time that the nation would get some of it right and would get some of it wrong. God expects perfection. At least that's what we're told, right? Well, what did he call me for? Because he knew I wasn't perfect when I could. he's the one made me. He searches me daily. What do you mean God expects perfection? Saints. If God expected perfection from you, all of you are disqualified. Except Jennifer. She's in the back and she's good. Everybody's disqualified. So what do you do with that? Well, I worked with a guy one time and said, Hey, uh, Eric, you know, you got to live in this flesh. Like, anything you want to do was okay. No, he's compromised with the enemy. God neither expects perfection from you, nor expects your failure. He wants you to aim for perfection and trust Him for the rest. That's what mercy is. Mercy is giving you that which you did not earn. Say, well, who am I going to give it to? Those who are striving for it. Those who want it. You know, I quoted to you during the worship service, John 8, Jesus uh, has a woman brought to him who was caught in the act of adultery. People didn't care very much about the truth because they didn't bring the man. How do you catch somebody in the act of adultery and not bring the man? Like he's not responsible. He dismisses the accuser and says, Woman, where is your accuser? Nowhere, sir? Then neither do I condemn you. But that's not the end of the message. That part is mercy. You know what he tells her? Go forth and sin no more. Do you really think that that woman left and never sinned again? No, but she was given her new direction in life, her new aim. Suddenly it was important to her to strive to not do those things. She might have even prayed things like Psalm 119. Lord, you made me. Help me to understand. Help me to hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is the goal and the aim of Christians, for His Word to be born in us and to grow and to begin to permeate our lives to where it is sweet and we hate the wrong path and we want to do what is right. This is neither an excuse to sin nor a license to be self-righteous. I can't think of a good expression today, but I've met people that thought that their sweat didn't stink. And when I was around them, they were very intent on letting me know their pedigree, their religious pedigree. I don't think Jesus is very impressed with that. I think He knew when He called you where your weaknesses were. And what He wants to see in you is a turning that strives for Him. And He will credit you with the rest. That keeps you from ever being arrogant. That keeps you entirely dependent upon His mercy. And aware of his role as your God. You know what the sad truth is? As people get born again, recognize that things in our lives aren't right, then as we feel like we get them right, we become gods to ourselves again. We judge all of those who are around us and we exonerate ourselves because after all, look at all the things we don't do. Really. So drinking grain or barley, drinking grain or barley, that gave you a unique, Uh, not doing that gave you a unique status that you could condemn everybody in the world? That something about eating and drinking made you more holy than the rest of the world? Why does the Word say that the kingdom of God is more than food and drink? Few of you are nodding your head like you've been in some of the same places that I've been. Uh... Let's let's move on to some more biblical principles. By the way, the return is prophesied in Deuteronomy 30. In Deuteronomy 30, the same God that said you'll be banished among the nations, he says, and I will bring you back from all the nations you were dispersed, even if they're the furthest nations on the earth. So understand this. The God we serve, when he birthed the nation, he said, you're going to blow it. Uh, but when you return to me, I will bring you back no matter how bad you blew it. Now, if he does the same thing with individuals that he does with nations, what does that mean? That means that on the day he called you, he said, I know Mandy's going to make some mistakes. I know there are going to be times she's going to walk in my blessing, and other times she's not walking in my blessing. But if she just trust me, I will always bring her right back to me. This is not an excuse to go run off, do your own thing. It is encouragement that God knew you were false when he called you, but he prophesied something you can put your hope in. Uh, by the way, those captivities, uh, you remember I told you that those words were spoken somewhere around 1500 B.C.? You know when the first captivity is? It's the Assyrian captivity for the northern kingdom. It's about 716. <laughs> From 1500 when it was spoken till 716 when it happened, that's a long time to wait, isn't it? In fact, during that time period, you could kind of get the impression, you know, God probably wasn't talking about us. I mean, I know he said it's going to happen, but, you know, uh, he's probably talking about somebody else. Couldn't you? In the book that first chronicles the Assyrian captivity, Isaiah, let's go ahead and turn there, in the 46th chapter. While talking about this, listen to the kind of things that God says. (laughs) Are you ever surprised when you see somebody mess up? Let's let's say for a moment that we were back in that scenario where somebody slapped a friend of yours in the face. Would you be all that surprised if they slapped him back? Probably not. Why? Because that's what's most natural to do, isn't it? But you can occasionally be surprised by godly behavior. Maybe even inspired by it, huh? Friends, God is not surprised when we don't get it right. He's been around a long time, but there's a few instances in the Word where His Son's walking around in the flesh and is absolutely astonished when some people got it right. How exciting is that? God knows that you will get it wrong, and is amazed and excited and 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 glories when you get it right. Is that an excuse to get it wrong, or do you aim? For those times when you can get it right, that's what we aim for. So you in Isaiah 46. By the way, there's three major captivities in Israel's history. One is in 716 under the Assyrians. One is in 586 under the Babylonians. And the next biggest one, longest one, is known as the Great Diaspora. It comes in AD 70. From AD 70 all the way till May 14th, 1948, Israel was suffering as a diaspora group of people scattered all over the place. When did God first speak that? He first spoke it when He founded the nation in Deuteronomy 28, the year fifteen hundred. That is amazing. 1,500 years before Christ, God announces something that is still happening accurately 1,800 and some odd years after Christ. That is an amazing thing. Do you think God's farsighted? That's better than Bobby Fischer. They say he could announce moves 12 moves in advance. He could move a piece knowing that if I sacrifice this one here in 12 moves, I will have my opponent on the other side of the board. That's amazing. I'm never going to be that good at chess. I don't even want to be that good at chess. But I know somebody who is a master at life. I don't have to be able to see the next move. I just have to be able to be in contact with him, and he will tell me what to do. See, I'll play chess with any of you if Bobby Fisher is speaking in my earpiece. And in the end, I will know it was all him, right? But it would be kind of fun to do, wouldn't it? We're a little bit like pilots of our own planes sometimes, and don't trust the air traffic controllers. <laughs> They've got the radars and all, but all we can see is what's in front of us, and so the planes go down. In Isaiah 46, I want to show you some ways in which God distinguishes himself. Isaiah 46, starting in verse 1. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I've upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth, even to sounds like God formed that nation, right? Same way formed you, even to your old age and gray hairs. I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will Rescue you. Before we get into the rest of that verse, anybody want to guess when he's talking about? You remember way back in Deuteronomy 28, he said that they would be taken into captivity in other nations? And then in Deuteronomy 30, he said, yeah, but I'll take you out. Well, now we're 760 years before Jesus, just before one of their first captivities. But what's he promising them? Hey, I told you about this from the beginning. I told you what would happen if if you did this. He said, but I'm still going to sustain you. I'm going to carry you. I've been with you from the very beginning. So I'm going to walk through this with you. This is kind of like a father that says, if you do that, son, I am going to have to punish you. But he never stops being your father. He's never more than hands reach away. And the punishment is not so severe that you won't survive it. In fact, in the end, it was meant to teach you something. To whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared Some pour out gold for their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god. They bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. Though one cries out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save him from his troubles. Remember this. Fix it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. (laughs) God speaking to his children who are rebelling. He says, who are you going to compare me to? Those things that you bought that you call gods? He so said, are you really going to compare me with them? You fix something in your mind that I'm going to tell you. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Before we read the rest of this, understand. God is saying, I want you to listen. I told you how this was going to turn out for you. And you don't know what I'm talking about. But I've made known to you the end from the beginning. So when you're in this captivity, you're going to remember the words that I told you of what brought you there. But also remember the words, I can bring you out of it. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, will you not learn to trust my word? I'm not a dumb idol who can't speak. He says, 700 years before this moment, I told you this would happen. Now it's happening, and you don't recognize it, but you will. Remember that I'm also the one that can bring you out of it. Why would God make known the end of something from the beginning? Have you ever been watching a movie, and you thought, have I seen this before? What do you start doing? You start trying to go forward in your mind to see what the next scene is going to be. Well... How would you trust that somebody else had seen the movie before? When they can tell you the next line before it happens, they know what is going to happen. You can trust them when they can demonstrate that. God is demonstrating to us in His Word regularly what is going to happen so that when it does happen, we know He's a God and there is none other like Him. He knows the end from the beginning. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. Far, uh, from a far off land, a man who will fulfill my purpose. Now this is even more interesting. To get Israel into captivity, which he said would happen 700 years before it happened, he has to raise up somebody who will do it. He calls him a bird of prey here. It just so happens that a Persian king named Cyrus who conquers the world and takes Israel into captivity. A bird of prey was his standard that he marched under. It was an eagle. And Isaiah actually names him 250 years before he ever lived. And he's going to actually name him by name. What I have said that I will bring about, what I have planned to do, that will I do. Now, in this sense, we're talking about going into captivity. But the same God also said that He'd bring them out and He'd restore them and that in the end it would be better than in the beginning. I want you to understand something. Wherever you are in life, it hasn't caught God by surprise. He knows you. He searches you. He's formed you. His Word is there both so that you can look at it and go, hmm, that's how I got in this mess. God said if I did this, I would be in this mess. Well, what does God say about getting out of the mess? And know for sure that as surely as His Word was right that put you in the mess his word will be right to get you out of it. Now I'm sorry that I'm not making this more complicated for you. Preachers get so impressed with the way that they sound when they speak and they almost always find ways to let you know just how educated they are. You know what I really want this morning? I want you to learn to trust God's word. When you read it you can see why your life is the way that it is however it is be it blessed or cursed. And if that's true, then when we read it and it tells us what we should do, we can trust that too. It doesn't work only in one direction. Listen to me. Well, we, how about we move on in Isaiah. Fair enough. Isaiah 44. I'm going to go back to the left. He makes known the end from the beginning. The Jews call that principle in prophecy the rearview mirror. <laughs> we We see a prophecy and we say, wow, this tells me what I should do in the future the Jews look at it and they say, no, no, not at all. None of us are that smart. This is so that after what God says comes true, we can look and go, wow, he's an awesome God. When we study biblical prophecy, we tend to study the way things will unfold. That's not how they look at biblical prophecy. They look at biblical prophecy as after it's unfolded, I can look and say, look, God did everything he said he was going to do. Isn't God grand? Their idea, you say, well, how does that help you if it's already happened? Their idea is, if he announced it and it's happened exactly as he said, then I can trust him about everything else he said to me. He gave us the same test in testing prophets among us. Somebody stands up and prophesies there's going to be a famine tomorrow and there is no famine. The next time they prophesy, eh, you you might take it with a grain of salt. Now, don't shoot them. They're probably trying to learn just like you. But All right, Isaiah 44, look at the 24th verse. We're going to wrap this up here in a minute because I think you guys got the point. It's another thing preachers do. We get so excited about whatever we study. And we're so impressed with whatever it is that we've obtained. That it's very difficult for us to stop short where you don't get the full appreciation. But I find out that your butts only appreciate sitting in those chairs so long. And then it's time to move on. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. Isaiah 44, the 24th verse. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of the false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited of the towns of Judah they shall be built, and of their ruins I will restore them. <laughs> you, you have to appreciate the perspective here. Jerusalem is not in ruins when this is being said. Jerusalem is not in shambles; It doesn't need to be rebuilt. God is both predicting that it will be torn up and that it will be fixed. And he's actually going to go in the 28th verse and says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. This is 250 years before Cyrus is born. And he is named in the Holy Text. What is amazing about this is that God is demonstrating to his people, I knew you would get into trouble. And the same one who knew that would get you out of it if you just listen to me. Can you imagine the day that this scripture dawns on the people? Jerusalem's in rubble. And... Cyrus is here, and actually Cyrus is the one who rebuilt the temple. Uh, They got into trouble under the Assyrians, but that's more of a history lesson than I intended to get into. But can you imagine the day when there's a king named Cyrus, and they remember in their scripture? We've been studying him for 250 years. We always wondered who he would be. Do you think that their trust in God grew that day? Well, how many times has God proven his word to you in your life? How many times have you known that something would turn out a certain way, and it did? What reason has he given you to doubt him? And if you are doubting him in some area, is it just a one-piece move kind of thing? Or is it 12 pieces down the road? See, the other thing that happened to me while I was playing with David is I got him into a position where I was sure I was going to win. He was in TechMate. And is that the last one? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one move away from victory, and I was very excited. Uh, I don't like to lose. Uh, I don't like to lose in anything. And I'm very excited. And David begins moving pieces on the other side of the board. I'm thinking, what? You know, we're fighting over here. What is this about over there? And I became distracted. Um, I found out that the people of God are easily distracted. What's in front of us gets uncomfortable to deal with, and so we run off and we blurry the issues. Maybe the real issue is we don't feel good when we're in the presence of God because He's telling us to do things we're not doing. But what we do as a distraction, a way to steer the attention away from that, is we blame all the people around us or all the churches we've ever been to. I don't think we ought to do that. In this scenario, saints... What I'm hoping that you will get is that God knows right where you are. He knows what it will take to bring you out. He knows what it will take to deliver you the entire rest of the way. Like a chess master, he sees what is ahead. He understands the motives behind the moves. And maybe most importantly, what I didn't understand David was doing was called strategic sacrifice. He's willing to sacrifice the issues over here to win the major battle in front. Saints, this is where we really need to be. Sometimes to preserve a king, the world will sacrifice a pawn. God is just the opposite. To preserve the pawn, he sacrificed his king. This goes against everybody's grain. What I'm trying to say is that he is teaching us in every possible way. I see what is ahead. I understand the motives behind all of the moves that are being made in your life. And I am sacrificing whatever it takes for you to succeed. What is the right response to something like that? Do you think maybe whatever small sacrifice he's asking in your life might be for a greater victory in another field? You think there's ever been a young man that maybe could sacrifice cable television for the sake of having holier eyes? How about an old man? How about a middle-aged man? You understand what I'm saying? God would never ask you to give up anything that was not good for you to give up. Uh, I just want, for fun, because you ought to know it, to read you something else out of Isaiah. But... uh, you don't have to read it with me. I just—I'll tell you about it, and then we're going to close. In Isaiah 43, I found this so remarkable. Sometimes when we read Scripture, we read it and say, "Well, did this already happen, or is this yet to happen?" But in general, when we read the Old Testament, we expect that most of the things have already happened. Uh, we don't know why—any reason other than it's called older, right? Listen to this. I was in Israel when I got this revelation. And the people around me treated it like, of course, you know, how dumb are you? But to me, it was amazing. Uh, Isaiah 43, verse 4. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you. By the way, you know who he's talking to? The people that he knew would fail. They would have to rescue, and that he said in advance that it would happen. Since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your lives. Do not be afraid, for I'm with you. I thought that that was about as clear a picture of Jesus as I possibly could see. But that's not the revelation I got. It says, I will bring your children from the east. Remember, they're scattered all over the globe. And gather you from the west. I'll bring them from the east. I'll gather them from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The revelation is while I was in Israel spread out. the western nations without restriction back to Israel. They freely made Aliyah from the eastern nations who had no desire to stop them back to Israel. To return to God to be what He had made them for His glory. But to the nations to the north, Russia, there had to be a command from God that said, give them up. And from the time of Israel's creating, In May 14, 1948, until the early 1990s, no Jews were allowed to return. But as if God himself reached down and threw a switch from 1991 to 2003, 1.2 million Jews returned during that time period because God said to the nations in the north, Give them up, they're for my glory. Then how about the south? The largest airlift in human history happened in the late 1990s. Never, not during wartime, not at any time have as many human beings been in the air as were in that day. A country to the south of Israel called Ethiopia was found to have Jews in it. It was proven that they were actually of Jewish descent. And the nation of Israel used Gentile airliners from around the world to bring people back to God's land. And why? Because they were created for His glory. Now a lot of theologians look at Israel the same way they look at your lives. They see nothing but the failure. God said from the beginning He knew that you would fail in some areas just like Israel would. But you were created for His glory. And He will bring you back. I don't know what you have to do to be brought back. Maybe it's just a command to the north that says let him go. Maybe he has to raise up somebody to carry you in their arms like he did coming from the south. But God didn't put you in a situation hoping you would fail for the sake of failing. Anything that you've ever felt like a failure in was so that you would one day feel safe from it. Any weakness in your life was so that God could take a weakness and turn it into a strength. Any area of condemnation in your life was so that you could feel liberation from it. This is the God we serve. He's not sadistic. He's not looking to punish you. He gives you enough rope to hang yourself truth. But He also extends the rope that saves you from hanging yourself. The question is, which do you want? Do you want to go on without His help, working against His Word, struggling and straining, with all of the excuses and the distractions on the other side of the board? Or do you want to say, you know, he's been right all along? Though whether you have to speak and say give him up or whether you have to bring somebody to carry me out of this pit, you formed me. Would you give me understanding into your word? See, this is the heart of God. It's not in excluding people. It's in qualifying them. Kings and pawns, huh? Who sacrifices their best for something that others don't see worth in? That's the God we serve. I am happy to learn to sacrifice just like He does for other people's benefit. That makes us like Him. And if people don't see worth in what you're doing, all the better. Who on earth would pick the smallest nation or the most fouled up group of people But God does because the bigger hole that they were in or we are in, the greater the salvation and the greater the God. How awesome is that? Now, if you don't remember that Cyrus rebuilt the temple or that it's 700 years from the time a captivity was pronounced to the time that it came about, the one thing I hope that you'll remember is the same God that knew that you were getting yourself into a bad situation knows how to get yourself out of it. And He desires that. Y'all stand to your feet. We're going to pray.